watch Twitter and Facebook executives come before the Congress, one of the, the issues that deserves more ventilation in that is the role of advertising. These companies are dependent on mm -hmm. advertising. Advertising is dependent on these companies. And the more people click, the more engagement they have, the more, the adver the more advertising dollars they get but also the more advertised, the bigger audience that advertisers reach. Right. So they, they have, they're married. They have a real incentive to get more and more. Welcome to the Lifelines podcast, brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Welcome to another episode of Lifelines, the Books Podcast. Today's guest is Ken Oletta, media critic for The New Yorker magazine. Before joining The New Yorker, Ken wrote for The Village Voice, The New York Post, and The Daily News. He has also written 12 books, five of them New York Times bestsellers. His latest book is Frenemies, The Epic Disruption of the Ad Business and Everything Else describing how the digital revolution has changed the ad business and why that matters. It's an honor to be interviewing a writer with a body of work as extensive, respected, and insightful as his. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure for us to have you here on the show. And I just want to start out, you're from Brooklyn, mm -hmm. this being sponsored by the Brooklyn Writers Project, I thought would be a great place to begin. I understand that you went to public schools mm -hmm. and were kicked out of one. <laughs> That's a good place to start, Dave. <laughs> what are you, an investigative reporter? <laughs> I, was, I went to Abraham Lincoln High School. I went to public school all through um, high school. Uh, at Abraham Lincoln High School, I was a, a semi-juvenile delinquent. Semi, not, not a full and uh, hung around with a bunch of kids and rolled up t-shirts and cigarettes and the in the roll-up, and um, I, I, you were not allowed to leave the building to go to the sweet shop unless you had a pass. And I copped a book of passes from the dean of men's office sitting on a table, and I went out to the sweet shop and hung out. Um, the dean of men, uh, his name was Dr. Orgel, I'll never forget him, he had a Hitler-like mustache, and I thought of him as Hitler then, unfairly, I'm sure, in retrospect, um, immediately threw me out of out of high school uh, for stealing passes. My parents, uh, my brother, my older brother was the first one to go to college in, in our entire family, and they were determined that I would, you know, do something useful with my life, though it wasn't clear what it would be. Um, <laughs> and they got an appointment with the principal, Abraham Lass, a great man. And um, I sat in Abraham Lass's office, and he said, tell me Kenneth, he called me Kenneth, and I bridled as he's calling me Kenneth. He said, what do you like about Abraham Lincoln High School? I said, well, I like football and I like baseball. He said, well, tell me this, Kenneth. How do you suppose you will play football and baseball for Abraham Lincoln High School if you don't attend Abraham Lincoln High School? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> I mean, I had not thought of it. And so he had my attention. And what he did then was, he, I was a junior, and he said, you have no more free periods. You will come to my office, outside office, you will sit there and you will read books I will assign you. Dickens, whatever, Melville. Wow. 
And so for that year and my senior year, I read, which I'd never done before, I read cartoons, and but I didn't read real books. And um, got into college. Um, the only college that would have me was the State University of Oswego. Uh, I had, I think, a 64 average. And, um, and I basically was a late bloomer, and I, some, sometime, I got serious, started reading books, doing well in school, and then went on to graduate school and got a advanced degree and, and um, so a writer was and, but born. He, but but Abraham Lass and I, he was my lifelong mentor. We would have lunch several times a year, and at his funeral, I spoke. He's just a great man, great man. He wrote thirty nine books. He wrote an education column for the old Herald Tribune. He's a wonderful. He was just a great man, great man. And uh, I think we all owe him a debt of gratitude because it sounds like he kind of knocked you off a course and onto the course that my parents got me in his office. But um, but he he, he knew what to he, do. He was he really got my attention. Do you know was he a father? Do you remember? Do you think? Oh he was yeah, a he was a father. His his yeah. son taught at Columbia. Oh, he was a father. He was a he knew what he was doing. He yeah. had a great program. Yeah. Well, his wife was a taught at I think at Erasmus High School in Brooklyn too. I, it, I also looked at Abraham Lincoln High School and found that there are uh, at least a half a dozen famous people out of that school. Playwright Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller went there before my time, Holman. obviously. Who was the second one? Elizabeth Holman. Oh, Holman. Holman, uh, uh, Holman. She was a congresswoman, yeah. She graduated the year before me, Abraham Lincoln. Um, I didn't know her then, but I knew her as a Congress member of Congress. Joseph Heller? I knew him, but not from high school. I knew him later as a writer. You were in the company. Look at that. He's a great man. I love Catch-22. Well, we like to talk on the show, too, about the development of a writer, because we find it you know, pretty interesting sure. to see. So at some point, and it sounds like you're not exactly sure where that point is, where you certainly just made this turn and decided that writing was for you. When, when do you think that happened? Not that you became studious, but that writing became the, the, the tool. I started you. writing for the, well, actually, there was a, a teacher, an English teacher at Oswego, Mrs. Bullock, and you wrote an essay in her class, and she said, I, I like that. Um, you, you know, you should write more. And I had never thought about writing more. And so I started to write more, and I, and I became a columnist for the, student newspaper once a week and that was kind of fun and then I, I viewed myself as a bit of an outsider so I would write columns attacking the administration and, and, and oh so, you started early yeah. nice and and um, and then um, I, I actually started a newspaper called an underground newspaper called Pravda Pravda spelled Pravda in Russian means truth it was it was the name of the the paper that didn't tell the truth in the Soviet, both Soviet Union. And I had this guy on my staff, he didn't get paid anything. His name was Dan Sharfman. And Dan was a communist, actually. I wasn't at all. And, and, but he was really dedicated to shaking up things. And a really sincere, idealistic guy. Um, and Dan would deliver the paper, uh, you know, the underground. No one knew who was, who was doing it. And, and when I spoke at graduation some years later, I disclosed that I was 
I was the person who did this. They were looking for John Fair, who was. Wait, what, wait. Let's talk about that. Uh, how how was it like to produce that, and how how, how wide a circulation did you? We have mimeographed it. Uh, you know, it, mimeograph. Remember those yeah. things. <laughs> right. <laughs> I I would think you know we we may have published published if we published a thousand. It was a lot. Uh, I would think. So anyway, I wrote for the school paper, and then uh, when I went to graduate school, um, I I was a columnist for. Paper and I was also editor of the literary magazine, off-campus literary magazine. Um, and so when I, s I thought, what do I want to do with my life? Uh, I, I studied political science in graduate school. And I got a master's degree, and I was in a PhD program. And I said, this is kind of boring. I don't want to do this anymore. And um, so I went to work in politics and government. And, um, and well, that got exciting really fast. But I wrote speeches, you know, so which right. writing. Right. And then, but then I'm stuck in, in, in that. And I love the guy I worked for, a guy by the name of Howard Samuels, who was invented baggies in the plastic clothesline. He's running as a reform candidate for, for governor. And then, with my help, he lost. And, and then I, I'm working. Good job. I, 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 I was aiming towards getting back into writing, right? I sabotaged whatever I could. And, and then I worked for Bobby Kennedy in the presidential campaign. Oh, that's so sad. Were you, he, were you, do you I remember was, the day he was assassinated? Yeah, very well. Were we, you? We were. I was. His speechwriter at that point. Oh no, no, no! I had. I was a peon. You still. I was. Yeah. A, I was a kid in my twenties, and I. I had a. Um, my job was to help organize New York State for when he came back to run the New York primary, and what happened was that he won the California primary that night. We were all excited. We had a meeting, strategy meeting, at the old Shelburne Hotel in Manhattan that night his New York staff, and his, his, his Jack English, his national committeeman, was, I think, was the, over, you know, ran the meeting. And we decided we really had problems, even despite his victory in California, because in New York he was sandwiched between Hubert Humphrey and the regular Democrats on one side, and Eugene McCarthy and the reformers on the other, and, and he was kind of a polarizing figure to many in New York. So we worried, could we win even with the bounce we would get from California? So we go to bed, and then four in the morning, or three in the hear? morning, three in the morning, someone said, "Turn on the television." And um, what was it like? all of us were sleeping. You know, like five of us sleeping in this suite. Um, and we turned it on. And we saw he was killed. And then I went and became an editor of a weekly newspaper. That was, um, and then um, there was kind of. Um, a reason to exit politics at that point. I don't know that. Yeah, either I help candidates lose for office. Or they get killed. You've got some track record you had at the point. Anyway, so I was a freelance writer for a while, and then I hooked up with, I did, I worked two weeks as chief political correspondent for the New York Post and had a run-in with the publisher. and Got kicked out again. I was out, yeah. And then I started writing for the Village Voice and then New York Well, that's more of a fit. Um, more of a match for somebody who is constantly butting heads with the administration. It is what it is. Yeah. It's How did unfortunate we just lost the village voice. Yeah. Yeah, it's so sad. Yeah, it is. It's sad. so sad. But you know, the truth is, uh, were you still reading the village voice? No. I wasn't either. Were yeah. you? Well, they had already gone digital. No. Yeah. So it's it's it had lost. When I was at the Village Voice, which is seventy six. 75, 76. Uh, it was every journalist read it. It was it was it was something you read, and, and 
it, it lost that uh, later in time. It's sad. Yeah, it is sad. Is that where you met your wife? No, I met my wife. Um, I was a boss at uh, this guy Howard Samuels, who I had helped lose for governor twice, who I, who I admired and, and really loved the guy. He was he was the first Democrat to support John Lindsay for re-election in 1969 as an independent. And he was the, uh, Lindsay was running independent. Samus was a Democrat. The Democratic candidate was a hack by the name of Mario Procaccino. And Samus says, I'm not going to support him. So he led the effort. Lindsay got elected. He said to Samuels, who was a businessman, would you, we're starting the first off-track betting corporation in the country, would you, would you start it and run it? And Samuel said, I would do it for a dollar a year, I won't take any money. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was reasonably competent, and I was executive director, first executive director of this. What, what drew you to that? What, what was interesting about that for you? Well, I supported Samuel, I mean, Samuels and Lindsay right. in that. It was a management challenge. It was kind of interesting, too. Right. And, and I had had a back, back, I'd done some of that, some management. And, oh, um, I thought you meant some betting. No, I, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, were well, you I, at, the, at the horse? I wasn't, no, I wasn't a better. He was called Howie the Horse, actually. He's very popular. Okay. And, um, but among the departments that reported to me was marketing. My wife had some experience in marketing. And she was number two in the marketing department, said the reporter. And I was wildly attracted to her. I thought she was just, she was just independent and, and, and didn't take any crap from anyone, and, including me. And I was very, and I asked her out. And today there would be sexual harassment. You think about <laughs> right, it, I was her right, boss. Right, right, I was her right, boss, right. I was putting pressure on her. And, and she resisted and I persisted nicely. I mean, it wasn't yeah, like yeah. I was. Is she much younger than you? She's younger. You yeah, know, not much. She's not five much. years younger. Than yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, well, we should say I brought her up because uh, there is a literary connection. Yeah. Right, right. And right. Um, she is a uh, literary agent of uh, very high-powered writers, and she's a very accomplished person in her own right in the literary field. She is. She 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 went. Um, we started dating, and and she and, eventually gave in to. <laughs> she 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 did, and. Um, we married in 77. She was then the general manager of New York Magazine, where I was a writer. Uh, she, oh, didn't she, flipped the, she flipped the script on you. Yeah, she, she, was, uh, she, she was general manager. And then after that, uh, she didn't become an agent right away, but sometime in, um, in the early 80s, uh, or the, yeah, pushing the mid-80s. She became a literary agent at ICM, International Creative Management, where she's... Where she still is today. She still is. Right. With, with clients, including Brooklyn clients. And just because I am an investigative reporter, I'm going to ask you, uh, you also have a daughter who's literary, is she not? She's an Kato, editor? Kato Letters, a senior editor at Huffington Post. Yeah. You so it, it's in the genes, I guess. Yeah, how did your family take to you becoming, I mean, I'm sure on some level they were shocked. They were like, we, they didn't know what to make of you and when you were younger. What did they eventually say about your career? When you went straight and stopped being a juvenile delinquent. Yeah, they were happy. Um, you know, my mom, my mom died at 64 and just before uh, my first book came out, which was called The Streets Were Paved With Gold. And um, so she never saw that. My dad, uh, died, he, he lived through several books of mine. He, 
he died sometime in the late 80s. Um, but, you know, he went, I would go back and have dinner at Gojudo's with him, and, and he lived in Coney Island until he died. They met in Coney Island. So they spent their entire life, and it was interesting. My father's Italian, my mother was Jewish. Right. My, my mother had two sisters who married Italian men. My father had a brother who married a Jewish woman. And when you went to Our Lady of Salish Church, sometimes you would hear a priest say, the Jews killed Christ. And my father stopped going to church. The Jews and the Italians lived so close together, they weren't stereotypes, they were real people to each other. So the thought that Nettie was somehow killed Christ to my father and his brother and, and, and my, my, my mother's two sisters' husbands was so alien as to be offensive. Right. So it's really interesting how the, that, the tension you see in other places you didn't see in Coney Island between ethnic right. groups. So, um, you worked with a lot of uh, iconic editors, you, which I think included Clay. Were you with Clay Felker? At I the, sure the was. Choice? Well, not only was I with Clay, when Rupert Murdoch uh, made a hostile bid to take over New York Magazine and the, and the Village I Voice, that. I was the only journalist who worked at both publications. I had a political column at the Village Voice and I, I wrote longer, more investigative pieces for New York. And so about 40 of us went on strike and we to try and block Murdoch, thinking in our innocence that by us stepping out he would he would backtrack and we were defending Clay, who was a, a brilliant editor. And so I went to see at one point I, I, I knew Murdoch's attorney, Howard Squadron, from politics when I'd been working for Howard Samuels. And I went to see him, and I remember I took Richard Reeves, um, the writer, and I took Walter Bernard, the art director of New York, to see to the meeting. And I said, Howard, I want you to understand, we will leave if Murdoch wins, so you don't want those to have to leave. He said, Ken, I don't think you understand. <laughs> Your furniture, you can be replaced. Oh, so when he hurts. won, we quit, and we were replaced. Oh, that was a right. battle. We had interviewed uh, James Simon Cunin, and he was talking about Clay Felker, and I'm just making a connection because he was at that point deciding about whether to write a piece and whether he really was even a writer. And he described Clay Felker um, putting his feet up on the desk and leaning right. back and saying, uh, he said he didn't know if he was going to be able to do this job because he was more of an outsider. And Clay was asking him to do a journal. And uh, I guess Clay Felker said, um, if said you're going to be a writer, you're always going to be a... Fly on the wall. Wasn't it the fly on the wall statement? Yeah. You're yeah, a fly on the yeah. wall. It, would, it yeah. was going to be hard for this person to both um, participate and write. And that was the topic of the discussion. And it, Felker said, if you're a writer, you're never a participant. You're always um, outside of it. And I thought of it just now because you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you were kind of an outsider, or you felt like you were. Well, I think a journalist is, I mean, it's really an interesting thing that, that I mean, the, a lot of pieces I did for the New Yorker, the profiles I've done over the years, um, are based on, if you don't profile someone, you, you don't want to be you want to get them to cooperate, so you want to, and you, so you're sitting and you've got access to them. And sometimes people will confuse access with being co-opted. But the truth is, 
you want to get inside their head. You, want to, you don't want to look on the outside imagining what they're doing inside the glass, but you want to be inside that glass and, and with them. And to, but when you sit down to actually write, you, they're not your target. They're not your audience. The reader is Ooh, your audience. Ooh, that's a target. And that's <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it, it, target. Yeah, that's probably a, it's an unfortunate slip. Actually, I would I would retract the word target, but in the sense that I'm not out to get them. Right. But they if may feel that, that way. Oh, after they do. Oftentimes, you have gone from being fairly much of a confidant, and then they see you confident writing about them. Confidant in the sense them. that you're sitting with them, you're having meals with them, right. you're laughing at their jokes, you're asking the most intimate questions about their father, their mother, growing up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you don't write anything for months or weeks on end, so they feel comfortable. And then when the piece actually appears, uh, and you've, you're independent because you're writing for the reader, not for them. They feel betrayed all betrayed, the time. Yeah, sure, yeah. And it's, it's, I once had this, I profiled Ed Koch when he was mayor his first year, and I literally sat in the office with him for the first year as mayor. He was mayor. I was a fly on the wall, your phrase. And I looked at his mail. I mean, I had total access to Ed Koch. And then the piece appears in two parts in The New Yorker. And Ed Koch was inflamed. I mean, he said, you've betrayed me. This is a, to, he publicly said this is an act of betrayal in the press, he said it. So I arranged to a, a conference call with him and his aide, Dan Wolf, who's the former founder of the Village Voice, who I knew, who was very close to Koch. And I said, Mr. Mayor, you can't use the phrase betrayed to a journalist unless I took something off the record and put it on. Mm -hmm. I told you a mm -hmm. lie. Sure. But I didn't do, I, he said, no, you didn't. I said, would you stop using the word betrayed? He said, I will, I'll call you a creep, but I won't, I won't stop betrayed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let, let's segment into your books. Let's okay. talk about books. We've talked a lot about editing. and uh, how, how did you decide then to, to start? Did someone approach you? Did someone say, you need to start putting some, some books together? Or did you decide on of your own accord that you wanted to then do this instead of just Well, calls? I think you're... My first book, I was covering the New York City fiscal crisis for New York Magazine and The Voice. And I, there's a yearning you have as a writer to write longer, to, and, and sometimes you get the feeling, this happened later, I didn't have it quite then, I, I got it later as a columnist for The Daily News, which one of the reasons I gave up, the, the major reason I gave up my column in The Daily News. You feel like you're writing a cartoon. You don't have enough left. I mean, they gave me more space. I had 1,200 words. Normal column's about 750 words. But you have one idea you can express, and you can't go much beyond that. A book lets you expand your wings and, and, and really delve more deeply into a subject. And so that, that's what I wanted to do. Well, I've, I mean, I've recently read a manuscript by a longtime journalist, and um, unfortunately, it, it read too much like a column. I mean, it was just not taking the room that you're talking about. And so, did you have any challenge in uh, shifting your writing style from that of the who, what, when, where, and why into a longer? I'm sure you, you always do. Um, the, in later books and years. I'm, I'm now starting in 77. I'm starting to write for The New Yorker. And there you're writing longer pieces. And some, some I mean, I did one three-part, I did several three-part pieces, several two-part pieces. And those are 40, 50,000 words. 
and it's almost book length. So you, you, you're more sense, acclimated yeah. to that experience. But sure, there's an adjustment mm -hmm. between any between writing a column and writing a book, or writing a column and writing a magazine profile. But it can be done. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think it's so. a big challenge, yeah. but it can be done. Yeah. I think you've done obviously an, an incredible job with so well, many. Well, you have kind of the sweet spot now because you can write the columns and then you can also write the books. I, I imagine you have to take a little time off when you're doing the books because they're so deep. Yeah, I, I found that it, it, it's. Uh, I always, when I was writing my column, I always took a leave from the column to write the books. Um, and oftentimes, the, you would do New Yorker pieces that fed into the book, which was great. This book didn't feed, naturally feed from New Yorker piece, so I literally hadn't done anything except a couple online pieces for the New Yorker while I did this. And we're talking about Frenemies. When did you start writing this book? Um, three years ago, last spring. I started reporting it. Oh, you started reporting it, and that was the impetus for you to continue and just make Basically it what I said, uh, the reason I, I got interested in this book, I, for The New Yorker I've written about the media for many years, and if you follow what's happening to newspapers mm -hmm. or magazines, much of television, radio, mm -hmm. um, they're advertising deprived. And, and you realize if, if you're a journalist and you want to follow the old Watergate adage to follow the money, the money is coming from advertising. Advertising is the fuel for most media. Without it, most media would die. I mean, even Facebook and Google, 97% of Facebook's revenues are from advertising, 90% of Google's. So I said, I don't know much about advertising. Um, I've written maybe one piece for the New Yorker, a profile of an ad agency person, but I really didn't know in all my coverage of the media much about the advertising industry. And I said, if I want to follow the money and the real power, why shouldn't I know more about it and look at The question was, is advertising going through the same kind of disruption that newspapers and magazines and much of the media was going through? And if it was, what are the damn consequences of that for the media? So that's what. what that's would what. you say that disruption is always leading to a negative result? Or uh, what I mean to say is that some may argue that advertising is maybe much more clever now, right? Because before it was just a billboard, right? And just because thousands of people see it, those are not necessarily the thousands of people that want that product. So now we can get really smart, quote unquote, smart about yeah, but, but, you know, how we get to that. Uh, one of the things I discovered, I didn't know this when I started, but in reporting this, as we move to a reliance on the cell phone as the dominant instrument, electronic instrument in our lives, our emails, our instant messages, we're watching movies and, and videos on YouTube and everything else, um, and not to mention phone calls. Um, uh, it dominates our life, and yet increasingly, when you, how do I do an ad on a mobile phone that doesn't feel like an interruption? And one of the reasons I call this book Frenemies, the largest frenemy is the public, mm -hmm. which doesn't want to be interrupted by ads, doesn't want ads that eat up their battery life, doesn't want a banner and, and pre-roll ads, and, and certainly doesn't want a 30-second equivalent of a TV ad coming right. at them. So, and then, so, so that's why 20% of Americans have what's called an ad blocker on their phones. Right. No ads get through. 30% of right. Western Europeans do. And you think about what we do with television. We have a PVR. Well, the PVR, according to Nielsen, 
of Americans who record a program skip the ads when they watch that program. That's right. So it, what does that tell you? It tells you the public really is fatigued with ads. New forms of ads? Okay, so they say, well, let's do six-second ads. We'll get around the problem. We won't do 30-second ads. But imagine you have a block of two minutes for commercials, right? And you have nothing but, but six-second ads. So you got 20 six-second ads. Imagine if you're Procter & Gamble or Unilever. Mm -hmm. Do you want to be the 10th six-second ad among 20? Mm -hmm. No one's going to notice you. Right. So it's really tough to figure out how to get people's attention. Right. So then what they say is, all right, and this is all explored in the book. They say, all right, we will have so much information about you, so much data about you, mm -hmm. which digitally we collect from Googles and Facebook and, and Amazon, et cetera, that we will be able to target an ad at you so it won't feel like an ad. Right. It will be a service to you. So can you walking down on Madison Avenue, you're at 59th Street, we know you bought a sport jacket at Barney's two months ago. Right. It's only two blocks away, Ken. Mm -hmm. If you go into Barney's now, we'll give you 20% off on any sport jacket of your choice. Now, will Ken say, boy, this is creepy. How the hell do you know so much right. about me? Right. Or will Ken say, wow, I like that. That's real. Right. I don't know the answer to that. I know my answer, but I don't know I what know. the public answer right. will be. Right. And we don't know that. And that's one of the questions for the future. What's right. your answer? No, I don't. It's creepy. I it's mean, definitely creepy. I mean, I thought it was creepy too. I talked about this at a Texas writing conference where I was presenting, and the reason I brought it up was because I was working with a startup where they have just gotten access to that type of marketing technology, and it's being used by the big five publishers. This is not an old concept, um, but the thought that I initially had it, it is a little creepy. I don't know if you remember there was a Tom Cruise movie, Minority Report, and this it. was. Yeah, okay. So, But it can be a... F look, I, I really think there are two, so two sides to that coin. On the one hand, yeah, it can be creepy. On the other hand, it, it depending on who the customer is, it can seem convenient, interesting, a benefit. I mean, the way that that particular company was using it is to say to an author, you're going to have a book signing at XYZ store. We are going to help you market for a high cost, not cheap, um, so that within a five to ten mile radius, you can have readers who like your type of book or your right. book in that store on the day that you're going to be there. Right. Now, that's a powerful thing to deliver to someone. Um, so, yeah, we're going to have all kinds of responses to that, I'm sure. Ken, we know you're a Met fan. Uh, you have a son. I don't, but it, imagine. Uh, would you like to take your son to a Met game in return for access to your cookies? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, th there are all kinds of things kinds. That, that you might consider a service to you and, and not an intrusion. What just, about storytelling? I'm so sorry to cut oh, you Oh, well, just to get a little dystopian on you, I mean, you did say you were a poli-sci major before you got tired of it. Um, if that big brother control of information crosses over into the government's hands, which is easy enough, subpoenas, you know, obtaining information from private companies. It's already in the hands of Facebook and Google. They have exactly. an right. amazing amount of data How how, how, where are you on the hopelessness spectrum? How far into the future is lost are you? I'm not a pessimist only because, I am intellectually a pessimist, but emotionally, the way I live my life, I live like an optimist. The reason is, I don't want to wake up in the morning being depressed. I don't want to feel, oh, woe is me, the world's coming apart. I want to know what I can do proactively about things. And intellectually, if you ask me, do I think 
Most newspapers have a future. I would say intellectually, just looking at the data, they don't. But I can't live that way. I mean, I, I believe the New York Times has a future, and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post, I mean, the Washington Post have a future. But do I actually believe the Detroit News, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch has a future? I don't. Right. And yet, if I were working there, if I were an editor of one of those papers, I wouldn't act like I'm doomed. I would say, what the hell can I do? Well, what can we do? And I think that's where we're heading, where we're either doing the type of marketing we were talking about, we're also talking about storytelling more often because people don't want companies anymore. They want they want the who is behind the brand, why does the brand exist? So. I think we're getting savvier and much more interested in why we buy what we buy, why we do what we do. But on the privacy uh, note that you're bringing up, right? Me personally, I don't care. Who knows anything about me? I don't care. Like, what are they going to do with it? I really don't care. Like, I, I wake up in the morning, like you say, and do. Now, I can be completely idealist, naive, um, and that's fine. I'm living in my own little bubble. What about medical? You know? What if they know what prescriptions you're taking? I don't care. But what if it might affect, what if you've got a medical problem? Give me, give me something that makes me care. That's what I, go uh, ahead, uh, go for it. Med, what if the insurance company knows, yeah. which, which they only know because they have access to your data, right. that you've got some potential issues, Yes. health issues, right. and therefore they won't insure you? Yeah. How do you feel about that? And what I if, feel like, well, how do I feel about that? I feel like insurance is one piece of the puzzle. I look, I don't even rely on social security. I'm 45 years old. I don't ex I don't even know if it's going to exist by the time I'm, you know, 20 years down the line. I'm the type of person and this again, I naive, idealistic. I count on myself first. Um, I believe that if all goes well, I hope to have the assets that I need to cover it. I may be fooling myself, but I really don't care. I don't care. And that may be a generational divide, I think. Um, See, I would have thought it was a generational divide if you were 25. I'm surprised at 45 you. I, I, it's just it perhaps is. the way I live it. Like, you have a way to live your life. I'm also um, incredibly optimistic. And look, you're talking to a foster kid, okay? I was on the street at 16. All I know is about survival. All I know is about relying right. on myself. So it, it's, it's part of my DNA and thinking, and so the moment someone says to me, you know, there's a big brother, there's a, I'm like, I don't buy that. I don't really care. <laughs> this is all I know. So we're all different, right? At the end of the day, we're all very different, and we approach life very differently. So, yeah, other than, yeah, I can get that, the whole they won't insure you. I think most, well, and there are other things. I mean, you may not get the job that you're applying for if a lot of your information is out there. But... There's going to be a divide. There are going to be some people who don't care what whatever age group they are or not. Um, as you move That's forward... That's the argument with a lot of the millennials, Facebook users. Hmm. The argument is that they care less about privacy than other generations do. Though Evan Spiegel, when I interviewed him for the book, said he thought that Generation X, which is the, the one uh, behind, the right. teenage right. generation right. of Snapchat users, he think he thought that they were much more concerned about privacy than millennials were. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't necessarily miss advertising when it's not around. I don't think that it would break my heart if I walked out into my city and I wasn't assaulted with five million commercial messages. And I think a lot of people, as you mentioned in your book, you know, they put on their ad blockers, they fast forward through the ads. 
um, nobody's going to miss it. Nobody's going to miss being manipulated. If I'm going to buy a car or any big ticket item, I'm going to research it. I'm sure I'm going to talk to people and I'm going to go to Consumer Reports. And the last thing I'm going to do is say, let me watch the ad. Nobody loves ads and nobody's going to miss them. Uh, well, they, they will miss them in the following sense. They may not miss the actual ad, but they'll miss the funds that the ads provide. How about the football season? <laughs> Isn't well, that people actually watch ads. Same watch with the Super Bowl. They yeah, watch yeah, yeah, the Super Bowl. But, but nevertheless, yeah. there's no question. I, I think the public in general, as a generalization, doesn't like ads. Um, mm -hmm. But they need ads. And, and if you think for a minute, and I write about this in, in front of me, mm -hmm. if you think for a minute that, that subscriptions can replace advertising, you're living in a dream world. Why? The one thing that Trump and Clinton agreed on running against each other in 2016 was that the working class, the middle class, the bulk of the population had not had income growth in 10 years. So the thought that they, whose average monthly subscriber cost for the average American home is $270 a month, not counting gas and electricity. So the thought that they, who were strapped, can afford to pay for Facebook and Google search and newspapers and television in Equinac. Well, there's we a can afford inconsistency rifle. there because if they can't afford to pay for anything, they don't need to be watching ads. I mean, why are the advertisers even bothering to reach those eyeballs if those people haven't got scratch in their pockets? Because well, they're not they're not the people they're aiming at. I mean, they're they're aiming at younger, more affluent people. But they, if you're a beer drinker, believe me, they're they're aiming ads at you because you're already spending money on beer whether you're poor or whether you're affluent. So poor people spend money on food and, and products as do they may not buy a, a, a BMW, and the other but they'll thing buy a Ford. That you point out in the book is that actually, if you zoom way back, we are the product. We are the... And that's See, I, I think so. I absolutely do think so. Right. But they, that's one of the problems. We are being sold from one corporation. Our attention is being but, sold from one corporation And that's one of the problems that you're seeing when you watch Twitter and Facebook mm -hmm. executives come before the Congress. One of the, the issues that deserves more ventilation in that is the role of advertising. These companies are dependent on mm -hmm. advertising. Advertising is dependent on these companies. And the more people click the more engagement they have, the more the, the more advertising dollars they get, but also the more advertise the bigger audience that advertisers reach. Right. So they, they have they're married. They have a real incentive to get more and more, and not to police whether bots or fake people are doing you know putting information out there because it, it, it involves it creates more clicks and therefore more audience and therefore more advertising. Value. I mean, beginning um, with the manufacturing consent in Noam Chomsky, uh, there's been a, a line of work about how advertising uh, forces the publisher, the writer, all the way down the line, all of the content producers um, to stay within certain limits because they identify with the interest of the advertiser. And so in another way, it is, it is greatly to be disliked. It is not a big loss to work towards shifting off advertising dependence when you see the cost of it. I mean, you wrote that book, we pay for your work directly. And I understand that Netflix is not doing too badly lately on a subscription model. 
So Nor, uh, if you Apple want apps and, but, but to preserve the purity and to put us in the right direction as a matter of policy, wouldn't you want us to take the pledge to push in the direction of paying for content? And we'll give you a minute to answer that. You know why? Because you have a meeting after this, and we are running short on time. Oh, God, I am. So I, I'm going to wrap it up just quick, I'm not a, a believer in conspiracy theories, including Chomsky's um, or Donald Trump's with fake news and, and the media's out to get him. I mean, I think that, that um, I've never felt constrained as a writer because advertisers write for The New Yorker. Uh, or uh, help fund the New Yorker. I've never felt that. Uh, I think that the, the constraint that advertising places is much more subtle than that. And that is to say, if and particularly since we can measure who actually, how many people actually read a magazine or a newspaper today digitally, the reason there's so much coverage of of Kim Kardashian or today of Donald Trump is that is that they know there's real interest in it. Advertisers like that, but so does the editor, particularly in a world that's collapsing around them. So the pressure then becomes to have more Kim Kardashian stories or, or more wow stories. And that's something that, that troubles me deeply. But it's not because the advertiser is saying, you do this. I don't think the world works that way, at least in my experience, it hasn't worked. Terrific. Okay. So we'd like to give you uh, an opportunity to, first, we're going to tell readers everywhere that they can find this book. I'm assuming it's online. It's on do you, your website. Would you, it's kenaletta.com. Dot com, yeah, but That's it's not, it. you can get it on Amazon or you can actually, on my website, you can go to you can click and Great. go buy it. All right. So we, in the interest of time, will move on to the written word segment where you can go ahead and introduce a section of your book and read a section for us, an excerpt. This is a, an excerpt about a major character in my book by the name of Michael Casson, who is basically the foremost power broker in the advertising world. He represents everybody. If, if, if Newspapers, television he represents, clients he represents, ad agencies he represents. He's just, everyone goes to Michael. And so I begin this chapter, chapter four, the matchmaker, which is what I call him. Wendell Millard, who was his president of, of the company, likes to say to a partner that he, that he believes everything is a yes, symbolized by the two-word sign above his desk, all good. Millard has more shoes than Omelda Marcos, she says. Quote, but my shoes have dents in the toe from shoving my foot into a shoe because I know he's going to say yes. An oft-told MediaLink story, that's the name of his company, illustrates Kasson's skill at pleasing others. He carries in his black Toomey backpack multiple portable devices, a Samsung Galaxy, two iPhones, a Blackberry, an iPad, along with phone chargers and connector wires. Several years ago, the brand stamped on the back of his cell phones was either Verizon or AT&T. The latter was a client and he had flown to Dallas for a dinner meeting with an imposing AT&T senior female executive that he barely knew. After dinner, as they stepped outside the restaurant, his phone rang. Reaching into his bag, he pulled out the Verizon phone. Michael, you didn't just take a Verizon phone out of your pocket, did you? The AT&T executive exclaimed. I think to myself, Michael says, you effing idiot, Michael Casson, instantly, he flung the Verizon phone to the pavement, smashing it into pieces with his heel. Turning to her, he exclaimed, excuse me, was there a question? 
She smiled. He smiled. He explained that he needed a Verizon phone in Los Angeles because AT&T service there was patchy. It was a bonding moment, he recalls. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ken. My pleasure. Thank you. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.